The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox real estate as it almost always is on the last Wednesday of the month which means it's basically kind of open mic day open M-I-C not M-I-K-E day that sounds like a horror movie it's open mic day and uh, Mike's the engineer by the way for those of you who totally don't get the joke because you can't see that there's somebody else sitting in the studio with me uh, so it is the week where any question you have about buying, selling, renting, getting in, getting out, wholesaling, retailing, whatever you want to talk about is fair game. There's a couple ways to get in contact here on the show while it's live today. One is by calling 877-772-9658. 877-772-9658 is the number to call, or alternatively, you can send an email. You just need to send it to askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. You can, by the way, send those questions in at any time, 24-7-365. It's just that you're going to get your answer via the live question and answer show at the end of the month. So I occasionally have people who send uh, emails to that address and say, and then a week later they send back a, or a couple of days later, they send back an email and say, you never answered my question. That's not, that's an email that I check one time a week. And it's when I'm sitting in the studio looking for questions from listeners. So it's not that you won't, you won't get your response via email. Typically Uh, we have some questions already in the inbox from folks who signed up to get notifications about the uh, show at realliferealestate.com and so who already knew that question and answer week was coming up and uh, the first one here is from Molly Molly with no last name and doesn't say where she's from she says do you use probate info to find motivated sellers if so do you explain what to look for and what letters to send to whom and when okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna re I'm gonna reread this question as do do real estate investors use probate information to find motivated sellers and if so how does one find that information and what do you send to who and when uh, so kind of a kind of a big question Molly uh, there's entire like courses and seminars taught just on what they call probate investing I mean it's really real estate investing right I'm not investing in the probate I'm, I'm investing in houses and 
the probate process can be a source of properties uh, for the simple reason that many people who inherit a property don't have any use for it other than to turn it into cash. And what they want to do is turn it into cash. They don't want to live in it. They don't want to rent it out. They don't want to keep it for sentimental reasons. They just want money. And also, uh, it tends to be the case that properties that are in probate are not you don't you don't see a lot of like really pretty completely fixed up updated houses uh, in probate because often if someone passed away it was either because they were older or because they had been ill and those are the types of folks who don't necessarily plow a lot of money into their properties in the last few years of their lives so it's got a combination of potentially people who are about to own houses they don't want and also potentially houses that aren't going to sell for full price on the open market because of their condition. And that's why probate is one of the several different ways that um, folks who are looking to talk to lots of motivated sellers will go about doing that. Now, when you get into the sort of legal process of probate, uh, is where is where the full day seminar comes in, because there's actually a couple of things you need to understand about it in order to effectively and appropriately contact the future owners of the property. Uh, the future owners are going to be the heirs, but the person who is in charge of making sure that 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 any property in the estate gets liquidated is called that they have a, like a specific job and they are called depending on where you live in the country either the executor or the administrator or the personal representative or the surrogate uh, these are people ap appointed either by the will if there is one or by the court if there is not a will to take care of settling the estate to make sure the bills are paid the assets are sold off the money gets divided as it should be between whoever is meant to inherit it. And it is typically that person, the the executor, administrator, uh, surrogate, personal representative, whatever they're called where you live, that you would contact if you were going to contact somebody and say, hey, if there's a, I understand there's a piece of property here that needs to be sold and I'd love to talk to you about buying it. A uh, couple of things you need to remember. Uh, Unless the person died both without a will and also without any close relatives, the person appointed to that position is normally someone close to the decedent. It's a child or a spouse or somebody like that, uh, which means that they are not only responsible for taking care of this issue with bills and assets, but also are a grieving party. And in my opinion, uh, those and, and, and experience, those people should not be contacted like immediately after the person dies because they first won't do you any good anyway, because the property still has to go through probate before it can get sold. And also, that's just a little too soon, right? If you if your grandpa dies on Monday and on Thursday, you get a letter from a real estate investor saying, can I buy grandpa's house that's not going to come across real well for you in your current state of mind. So 
generally the will will be filed or the or the estate will be opened sometime between two weeks and I've seen it take as long as six months or a year after the person passes away. And then it's generally a six month or so process to work the estate through the probate process. And it's only at the end of that that the property can be sold. So you're not in a big hurry to start contacting these folks. Uh, I know a lot of people that the day the will is filed, they will send out a letter. I like to wait a month or so before I do that because it's both too early in the process for them to actually sell the house and if grandpa died on Monday and they filed the will the next week you're now within a week of the time that their loved one passed away and that's probably not cool uh how do you find these folks well if you're lucky enough to live in a place where the probate records are online that makes it super easy most people are not in a place geographically where probate records are online and therefore finding properties that are in a state is actually a matter of going down physically to the probate court and asking nicely to see the files and you in in many cases you will actually be handed a paper file with the executor's appointment of executor who the executor is often their address the will if there is one Uh, later on in that process there will be an inventory of the estate in that in that booklet and uh, you have to sit there and kind of copy down information. You may find that the folks who work at the probate court are not super duper cooperative about wanting you to take files. And I mean, you can't take them. I mean, <laughs> look at them. And uh, sometimes they express that by doing things like saying, well, I need a name before you can even see a file. Or they'll say, if you say, well, I just want to see all the ones filed yesterday. Uh, they may say, well, you're only allowed to look at three at a time in, you know, an effort to kind of slow you down and discourage you from doing exactly what you came there to do. So be aware of that. And uh, the person that you contact is the executor or whoever is in charge of settling the estate. And the time that you do that is slow down a little bit, maybe a month after the estate is opened. So thank you for your question, Molly. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. 877-772-9658 is the number to call if you have a question. You can also send emails to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. And today is question and answer day on Real Life Real Estate, which means that um, any question that you have about real estate investing, no matter how dumb you think it is, nobody can see you here on the radio. That's why I'm wearing my sweatpants right now. I'm not really wearing sweatpants, but Mike looked under the table to see if I was wearing sweatpants. Hey, those are sweatpants. Those are not sweatpants. Those are very cool jeans. Um, Nobody can see you. If you send an email, nobody knows who you are. Whatever question has been bugging you about real estate, this is a good day to ask it. You can ask it by phone at 877-772-9658. You can ask it via email. Askvina at gmail.com is that uh, email address. Uh, And I've been sitting here doing a little research on a question that I got 
via email because I wanted to make a point uh, to the to the questioner. Um, this is from Dave, who is here in Ohio, and that that by the way is it's very helpful sometimes to uh, for me to know where you're writing from. He's from Tiffin. And he says, I listen to your show via podcast. My question is about the many forms of deeds. Can you please explain the differences in them and also the pros and cons if there are any? And the piece of research that I was attempting to do uh, during the break was to get a count on the total number of deeds used in this country because it is at least in the dozens. It is at least in the dozens. And just in... Ohio, we have general warranty deeds, limited warranty deeds, special warranty deeds, quit claim deeds, uh, uh, administrator deeds, executor deeds, master deeds, sheriff's deeds. There are so many kinds of deeds out there that a full discussion on all the different kinds and what specifically they mean would not only be extremely lengthy, it would be incredibly boring. Because they basically all fall into four categories. They fa- they fall into the category of general warranty deed, which is the most common type of deed that is used to transfer properties. And a general warranty deed is called that because the seller is making a general warranty that the title to the property is clear going back to whenever the property was first blocked off by George Washington or whatever. That is the kind of deed that most people want and also the kind of deed that most people get. But there are times when you have no choice other than to either convey or receive one of the other kinds of deeds. And the second most common kind is the, the basic, the basic, category of deeds that have limited warranty instead of general warranty. And a true limited warranty deed or special warranty deed is one where the seller is saying, I'm only actually guaranteeing the title since the time I acquired it. I'm not I'm not saying anything about what happened before I owned it, but I haven't done anything to mess up the title. And then a special form of a limited warranty deed is one that I want to spend some time with, and that is the quit claim deed. Uh, And that's Q-U-I-T claim deed, by the way, not Q-U-I-C-K. Although I understand how people make the mistake because they're often used to convey deeds quick, uh, to convey properties quickly, but they are quit claim deeds. And a quit claim deed has the least warranty of any kind of deed that you can receive. It basically says, I am not stating that I have any particular interest in this property or that I, or that I have any particular knowledge of the condition of the title, but whatever interest I do have, I am conveying to you. Quit claim deeds are not by themselves dangerous. It's not dangerous to buy a property with a quit claim deed, but you should never accept a property with a quit claim deed unless you have done a title search. Remind me to tell y'all the story sometime about the person I know who bought a property via a quit claim deed and then found out 
months later that the seller owed a mortgage against that property of four or five times what the buyer had paid for the property and of course did not pay it off when he received the buyer's money. It didn't mention that it was there and they didn't do a title search. So what they got was his interest in the property, which was subject to this very large mortgage. Now you might say, well, but the seller has to pay that mortgage. Well, and if the seller doesn't pay it, guess what? The property has to pay it. So quit claim deeds are most commonly used when it's like family members deeding their interests and in properties to one another. You know, in divorces, you see quit claim deeds a lot. Uh, you know, you're getting the house, fine, I'll quit claim it to you. Um, uh, five siblings have inherited a house, but they've all agreed that one of them is going to live in it and own it. So the other four just quit claim their interest in the property to the fifth sibling, right? That sort of thing. The time you see them as a real estate investor are when you're buying a property from a hedge fund. It's very common that hedge funds only want to give quit claim deeds. And when you're buying a property from a scam artist, when every time, like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that only scam artists would ever use them, but in my experience, Every time somebody has come to me and said, I want to sell you this house, and by the way, it's going to be a quick claim deed because that's just how I do business. When I've poked around and looked at the title, the reason they want to sell it via a quick claim deed is because they can't warranty the title at all because the title is completely messed up with liens and bad transfers and all sorts of things. If you get a title search and the title is fine, and the title company will issue title insurance saying the title is fine. It's perfectly okay to get a quit claim deed. You should know, though, that in some states you cannot buy title insurance on a property that you have received via a quit claim deed. So I'm going to say don't be completely scared to death of quit claim deeds, but be very, very cautious if that is what you are offered. Uh, for, third kind of deed is deeds that are held by trusts. So these are like deeds of trusts and trustees deeds. Uh, these are conveyed by people who are third parties. You know, they, they are the trustees of a trust. They are not the actual beneficiary of the property, but they are the one who can convey the property. So again, title search, title insurance, it's okay to accept a trustee deed. And then the fourth kind is kind of this big category of deeds that were executed by courts for some reason or another. So a sheriff's deed. Why would you get one of those? Because you bought a property at a sheriff's sale. Is a sheriff's deed a legal way to transmit a property even though the former owner is not the person signing the deed? Yes, it is. It's a court-conveyed deed. Um, administrator deeds, which would be from administrators typically of estates. Um, you'll see a number of different flavors of that, but when you're buying a property through some sort of a legal process a tax sale, a sheriff sale, um, probate courts auctioning off a property, something like that. What you are going to get is one of these court type deeds. Again, absolutely fine as long as it as long as you've done a title search and the title is clear and insurable. So yeah, I mean you'll see all sorts of different things, but the the two very most common things you're gonna see are a general warranty deed 
and in Ohio, a limited warranty deed, or is it is sometimes now called a grant deed? It's the same. It's the same thing. The limited warranty deeds are usually coming from banks. They're usually bank-owned properties that are being sold. When I see a grant deed or a limited warranty deed, I almost always look up and see that it was a bank that sold it. Uh, but general warranty deeds are the thing that most people convey and that most people want. So thank you for your question, David. Um, if you want to do additional research on any of the other dozens and dozens of types of deeds that are used in Ohio and throughout the country, um, you can Google it like I did. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. Our number here in the studio is 877-772-9658. You can also send an email uh, to askvina at gmail.com. A uh, question here from Carolyn, who is from uh, the Northern Ohio, I think she's from Youngstown, either Youngstown or Akron. Uh, is there any way to guarantee funds to a seller on a deal with a down payment now and the balance in six months other than cash and escrow? I plan to rehab it in four months and then give myself two months to sell it. I feel I can sell it within six months, but just in case, question mark, question mark, question mark. I want to do this in my Roth IRA, and right now there is not enough money in the Roth. However, I have enough cash and a personal line of credit that I could partner for a small portion outside of the Roth. Wow. Okay, so you actually got two completely different questions here, Carol. One is about partnering with your Roth IRA. And that is a that is a subject that I can't touch with a 10-foot pole. We would need to have John Heyer or somebody in here um, talking about whether he thought that was a good idea. Because as you know, you are a, uh, a disallowed party to your own IRA. You're, you're not supposed to be doing deals that both you and your IRA are in. So um, let's just let's just forget you asked that part until you get a chance to talk to John or some other IRA expert about it and go back to the first question of is there any way to guarantee funds to a seller with a down payment now and the balance in six months? And the answer is yes. And you know what it's called? It's called a mortgage. Mortgages don't have to have interest and they don't have to have payments. They just secure a promise. And the promise that you're proposing to make here is that I will give you a certain amount of money now, and then I will give you all the rest of the money, which is a much bigger amount, six months in the future. And you could have a mortgage. In other words, you could, you could, you could sign a mortgage to the benefit of the seller that said this. And what the mortgage would not have would it be a note that said, and I'm going to make you monthly payments and they're going to be at this percentage of interest. The note would basically just say, there's no payments due and there's no interest due until six months from now when the mortgage balloons and I owe you the rest. And what you're describing is what is commonly called a split funds deal. It's really a mortgage with no interest and no payments and a balloon in six months. But it's called a, a split funds deal and it's not terribly uncommon, especially in the case of a rehab property. I would strongly recommend, though, Carolyn, that if you believe that it's going to take you four months to rehab the property and another two months to sell it, 
that you pad that out by double. That you don't promise the seller a giant payment in six months because what happens if you find a problem and your rehab set back by a month and now you've only got a month to sell it, but the market has slowed down some and it takes you three months to sell it, that puts you outside of your balloon date on your mortgage that you gave to the seller. Better to underpromise and overdeliver. I would tell the seller, I'm going to need a year. I'll give you the down payment now and the rest of the payment will be due in a year or when I sell it, whichever comes first. So it's still the case that you're going to pay it off in six months if you're finished and sell the property. You're going to pay it off when you sell the property, right? It's still the, it's still the case that if things go exactly as you planned, you will have a check in that seller's pocket in six months. But if things don't go exactly as planned, you're not making a phone call to that seller saying, oh, so we need an extension because if he doesn't want to get it, give it to you, he can actually start the foreclosure process based on the fact that your loan has ballooned and you have not made that balloon payment. And you don't want that to happen after you've put a bunch of work into a property. So um, again, call an expert about that thing that it sounds like you want to partner with your Roth IRA because I don't think that's a good idea. And the rest of it, you're going to memorialize it with a mortgage with your seller. Just maybe make it longer than you're thinking right now. Thank you for your question, Carolyn. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will answer more questions from listeners here on Question and Answer Week. 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm Vina Jones-Cox and... It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, which means I'm looking at questions right now on askvina at gmail.com. That's askv like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Or you can give us a call up until uh, about five till six. Nope, that would be too late because we'd be going off the air and I'd be like, oh, thanks for calling. Bye. Up until about 10 till six at 877 877- 772-9658. And that's six o'clock Eastern time, by the way, for you folks who are listening in Arizona. Question here from Matt in Columbus. He says, I live in the short north area of Columbus. I'm a new member of CORE, which is the association up there, and have been trying to decide how to make around $5,000 a month in passive-ish real estate income. I currently do not have a W-2 job, so I'm a little wary about trying to contact lenders. My current thinking is to buy a multifamily or multiple ones that will get me to my income goal. I have access to some cash, around $200,000 that I could put toward properties. My thinking is it would be more feasible to leverage my money in order to maximize my cash flow, but I'm not sure. Uh, another issue that I've run into when I analyze deals around Columbus is that the numbers don't exactly make sense to do the deal. Okay, so let me let me address your last comment there first, Matt, because um, it is usually the case that no deal that you ever look at and analyze makes sense. In other words, the the seller is asking a price pretty much 100% of the time 
that when you then run what are the what's the income what are the expenses and what is my return for the time and money that I'm going to have invested in it that return is not adequate for the risk you're taking and the amount of money that you're going to invest in it that is why it's called making a deal deals don't deals don't happen you don't find them you make them so the key thing to do before you even start this analysis process because I, I get the feel you've done this a number of times you've sort of looked looked on paper at what the numbers of the deal are and crunched the numbers and went eh, this is a this is a five percent return and it's in an area that's going to have a lot of management drama and I don't see why I would want to get a 5% return on that when I could take my $200,000 and loan it out at 8%. And you're right, you should not do that. Before you get to that point of number crunching, you need to discover what the seller's motivation for selling is. Because it's entirely possible that that person has thrown that deal out on Craigslist or out on the MLS or whatever, testing the market. You know, I want to see want to see what kind of offers I get when I put this number out here. Or um, they kind of want to sell and they will sell if they get that number that's only going to get you a 5% cash on cash return. But really, they're not that unhappy with the property and they're not moving out of town and their health is fine. And, you know, they just think it's it's top of the market. It's a good time to sell. Of course, they miss the top of the market if they're selling right now. But uh, it's a good time to sell, you know. If I get my price great, if I don't get my price, I'm perfectly happy holding on to it. So those are your those are your unmotivated sellers, and there's no big reason to crunch the numbers on those deals because when you crunch them and you say, okay, I'm getting a five percent return, I need a ten percent return on this deal, which means I have to offer this other price instead, this lower price. The seller is going to say no to that. A motivated seller, on the other hand, who's got something going on in the background that makes them actually kind of need to sell the property, not just like maybe want to sell it, is going to be much more flexible on the numbers. But until you know, until you know, like, why is the seller selling? You don't know that. And I think you're probably spending a bunch of time analyzing deals and then, and then not going to the seller and saying, well, it wouldn't work for me at this price, but it would definitely work for me at this price. And, Part of the reason for that is you don't know why they're selling. Memorize this. Deals are not found, they're made. And also, they're only made by people who actually need to sell their properties. So that's issue number one. Issue number two, how to make $5,000 a month in passive-ish real estate income. I'm going to take, I'm going to take passive-ish to mean that you're going to get a single asset and then that, that asset is going to throw off checks every month, whether you ever buy another asset or not. You have $200,000. You want to make $5,000 a month. That means that you need to be generating a 25% return on your investment, which means you must leverage. You're not going to go put that $200,000 into one or two properties and have those properties create a 25% return in all likelihood. However, if you took that $200,000 and you turned it into five properties because you were putting 20% down on each one, 
you might actually be able to generate a 25% return on the cash you'd invested. Do you see the difference? If I get one $200,000 house that rents for $2,000 a month, I did good. I got a 10% cash on cash return, but I didn't reach my goal of $5,000 a month because there's going to be expenses with that uh, rent anyway. If I can buy five $200,000 houses, yeah, now I'm making a mortgage payment and that's going to affect my actual cash on cash return. But I have created so many more assets there that there's a much better chance to to get to that $5,000. So how do you leverage when you don't have any W-2 income? Uh, well, option number one is go ahead and try and get pre-qualified for a loan. It may surprise you. You know, if you've been in business for yourself and you've been there for more than two years and you make good money, there you might be able to get a conventional loan, which would be your ideal situation because those are nice fixed rate, long-term 30-year loans. You probably can get a loan from a portfolio lender, which is going to be a smaller bank who doesn't sell their properties to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or any of those uh, secondary buyers. Your interest rate is going to be higher. I just got a loan from a um one of these uh, portfolio lenders that is at 6.25, I think. And I, if I had been able to get a conventional loan, uh, it would have been at five and a half or 5.25 or something like that. But I'm not qualified to get conventional loans because I have too many loans. And one of the limitations on conventional loans is you can only have 10 loans. And I have more than that. So it's portfolio lenders for me or it's private lenders or partners who own a piece of your deal, but are passive, you're doing the work and they're passively receiving part of the income, or uh, owner finance deals, where the owner themselves will carry the payment often at a better rate than you can get from the bank, uh, in which case you can probably make that $200,000 turn into 20, at least small multifamily properties. So there's 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 several options. I like the way you're thinking. I like the whole passive income thing because that's that's where everyone is ultimately trying to get. All these people who have these wholesaling questions and that's you hear you hear a lot of people talking about flipping houses here and at, at the association. Their ultimate goal is not to keep selling assets for cash all the time. They're selling assets for cash so that they can get into the position that you're in where you've got a lot of cash and then they can invest it into assets that they hold on to. And eventually the goal is that those assets by themselves pay for your whole lifestyle, right? It's not that you keep having to go out and find the next deal and flip it and find the next deal and flip it and find the next deal and flip it. So good good thought process. I like that. And you do have several options for how to turn that $200,000 into $5,000, but you're going to need to do some research on owner financing, on partners, on private financing, and then go to some of these little local banks, see what they have have to offer you, and also get with a regular bank and ask to be pre-qualified and see if you can get a conventional loan. And then, of course, you've got to go out and find the right deal. Um, did I just say find the right deal? Bad me. You're going to have to go make the right deal, create the right deal. Uh, thank you for your email, Matt. We are going to take another quick break. If you have a question, got a couple more minutes to get it in. 
877-772-9658 or askbina at gmail.com. Welcome back. Something to my microphone. There it is. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. <laughs> I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week. We're in the last segment of the live show now. And by the way, those of you who listen on the podcast, you, you understand that this is actually a live radio show that goes out over the radio waves here in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's live on Wednesdays from 5 to 6 o'clock Eastern time. I always have, you know, I travel around the country and talk to real estate groups and inevitably somebody comes up to me and says, I love your podcast. And I say, well, you, you know, you can actually like listen and participate if you go to wmkvfm.org on Wednesdays between five and six o'clock and we're live then. Oh, I didn't know. I thought it was, I thought it was a podcast. Yeah, it is. But also, you know, live. Uh, okay. Question here from Kevin. He says, other than wholesaling, what are the next two strategies that you would focus on with the expected downturn coming and why? Now, Kevin, I'm guessing that what you're asking is what exit strategies would I focus on and why? And, uh, there's only actually five exit strategies for a piece of residential real estate you can wholesale it which you already mentioned you can retail it which means it just generally it means taking an asset that is undervalued or underperforming because of its condition in some way uh you know when you think about retailing you think about what happens on television where people buy a house and fix it up and resell it to a homeowner but that's not actually the only way to retail a property you could buy a you could buy a distressed 40 family building and you could spend 2 years updating all the kitchens and the baths and turning uh, turning out the tenants who weren't paying and bringing in tenants who wanted to pay more for their new kitchens and baths and then sell it for an increased price at the end of that so re- retailing is really kind of reperforming an asset you can even do that with notes. You can buy like a distressed note that the borrower isn't paying on and you can make out, work out a new payment plan with the borrower and get him borrowing, getting him actually paying for a while. And then your note has gone way up in value and you can sell it if you want to. So that's wholesaling and retailing. The third option is renting. Basically it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my asset, but I'm going to let somebody else have the use of it in return for a monthly payment. There's selling the property and carrying back the financing. So I, I, I could buy a house and then I could sell it and I could uh, carry back the note, right? I could say, I'll, I'll sell you this house for $150,000, but instead of you having to go get your own financing and qualify with the bank and put your big bet down payment down, I will just take payments of $1,000 a month for 20 years or how, however that worked out. And then the fifth strategy is sort of a a bit of a melding between the renting thing and the selling thing. And that's what you will hear called lease options or lease purchases or rent to own. Where you're the, the you're actually you're you're renting the property, but at the same time you're giving up your right and control over the ultimate sale by saying at the beginning of that agreement, 
I will also sell it to you at this price that we have already agreed to anytime within the next year, two years, three years. And the reason I say you're giving up control over selling it is because as long as that person is keeping the lease part up to date, they have the absolute right to buy that property during that time at the price you've already agreed to. You, you, you could actually sell the property, but you would be selling it subject to that other person's right to buy it. So really no one's going to buy it from you unless they're buying it at a pretty decent discount. So um, you asked me for two more strategies and that would be two of the five. And, I, and I, I'm going to turn the question around on you a little bit and I'm going to say um, my primary strategy for the next couple of years is to acquire as much property as I can while the prices are down and the inventory is up. Because what happens after the downturn is that the market starts to go back up again, just like it did over the last five years. And then ultimately at some point, I'm guessing 2025, 2026, uh, we have another full on cycle reset and the market truly does crash and burn <laughs> i didn't touch at that time that wasn't me i just it just the mic just fell apart or disconnected or something um so what i then do with those properties because i think your question was actually about exit strategies what I then do with those properties is going to depend somewhat on the property. If it's one that I would really like to still own when I retire, I will rent it. If it's something that I go, you know, this isn't this was this was a good property, it was a good price, it's a little farther away than I really like my rentals to be or it's not in the school system that I really like my rentals to be in, I might lease option it or sell it on financing because those two strategies tend to get attractive to potential buyers in times when they're not sure if they're going to still have a job a year from now. So if we get a recession in combination with this market downturn, uh, there'll be a lot of people in that position who they, they do have credit, they do have money, but they just like, they want to test drive the property. Basically, they don't want to commit and sign their name to the bottom of the mortgage until they see if, when the layoffs are going to stop. Um, so really my, my strategies are around buying good deals to hold while there's lots of good deals out there and secondarily raising the money to be able to do that. So that's maybe not quite the, uh, answer you were looking for, but that's my answer. A uh, question from Dave in Chicago. He says in the in this mid-cycle correction, so he's, he's actually addressing the same thing that the last person did, how big percentage-wise will prices drop in a typical mid-trend correction? Uh, that's an interesting question, Dave, because I, I, I can tell you that in the last one, if you look just across the board, ignoring differences in markets, ignoring that luxury houses were different than move up houses were different than bread and butter houses were different than rental houses. The overall drop in prices was like eight to 10%. But what that doesn't take into account is places in the country that are hit harder because maybe they are in 
kind of bubbly territory and places that are not hit hard at all because they the the prices before this the mid-cycle slowdown did not go up in a crazy way and so you know they get flat but they don't maybe drop a whole lot the other thing it doesn't take into consideration is the difference between the sellers who can wait to sell their houses and get their prices because they're not motivated and the sellers who absolutely must sell and they can't wait until the correction is over in however long it takes 18 months two years whatever that number is because those folks at the bottom of the market in terms of their house isn't in great shape maybe it's not the world's best neighborhood maybe they just need 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 to sell it and there aren't that many buyers out there have to take a much bigger price drop to get their house sold than the people who are like, eh, you know, I could move this year or next year. I'm just I'm just going to wait until somebody offers me what I want for my house. So there's the there's the big picture and then there's the more like micro market picture that is what we really worry about as real estate investors, right? You don't care how much house prices drop in Cincinnati. You care how much they drop in Chicago and probably in specific areas in Chicago for that matter. I just know that every mid-cycle slowdown I've been through has been a a good buying opportunity for people who were, you know, had their eyes open and knew what they were doing and were willing to pull the trigger. So, appreciate your question, Dave. I'm afraid that we are real close to out of time here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. I do want to know listener let listeners know that you definitely want to be tuned in next week. I'm not going to tell you why, but there's something special happening and you want to make sure that you are here because it will only be happening for that one hour and um, you'll miss out on your opportunity if you're not tuned in five o'clock eastern time next wednesday we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing until then happy investing happy investing